The Water Values Podcast, Session 74. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGibson. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my son Joey said, I'm Dave McGimsey and thanks for joining me. Well, hello everyone and I hope you in the U.S. had a very happy Thanksgiving. I'm just getting back from Mexico having spent Thanksgiving down there, so please excuse me if I'm a little late getting the show notes and transcript posted for this session. Uh, We've got a great guest today and she's with an organization that's a perfect one to support during these holidays. Uh, Our guest is Eleanor Allen, the new CEO of Water for People. Eleanor is incredibly busy with all the great work she's doing for Water for People, and I'm lucky I was able to get her. You know, I contacted her back in early October to see about doing a a session or a podcast for the holiday season. And because of her full travel schedule and trying to find a time in my schedule uh, to get it done, we had to record this the Monday before Thanksgiving, essentially right before I left for Mexico. So this is as fresh an interview as you're going to get. Um, Ellen, Eleanor does a great job describing a worthy cause and all the good work that Water for People has done and is doing. So take a listen and please consider supporting Water for People this holiday season. With that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Eleanor, thanks so much for coming on to the Water Values Podcast. Really appreciate you taking some time out, especially when I know you've been traveling so much. Um, To start off, Eleanor, could you tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water? Sure, David. Well, first interest in water was growing up in the Great Lakes region. I lived down the street from Lake St. Clair, which is a smaller lake between the Great Lakes. It's actually a really big lake, and you can't (laughs) even see the other side, which is Canada. I always grew up around water and sailing, and then uh, in high school... Good at math and science, family of engineers, kind of been told I needed to be an engineer, not knowing what that was. So I went to engineering school and gravitated towards environmental sciences, really. And then the degree I could do with environmental sciences was civil engineering. Mm-hmm. So I found myself a civil engineer, always loving water, and uh, got my first job doing hydraulic engineering. So basically playing with water in large, full-scale model shop of dam spillways and um, um hydraulic structures and figuring out what was wrong hydraulically and why pumps were failing and and fixing them. So that was an amazing first job, not really knowing what I was getting into, <laughs> and continued my love of water into uh, going to the Peace Corps and water and sanitation, and then grad school really focused on water and wastewater treatment. Sure. And so what what have you done now uh, to date with, with all that great experience you've got? Well, consistently stayed in the water sector <laughs> and... Uh, Really always thinking about people and the environment and relationships with water. So once I finished grad school, started working, again, back into consulting, but really focused on designing water and wastewater treatment plants, more on the wastewater side, and working up to bigger and bigger projects and programs and uh, portfolios of, for major utilities of major capital improvements on both water and wastewater assets that they had, multi-year programs, and... Um, was fortunate enough to also work into programs for infrastructure for the Olympics. I moved down to Rio at one point of my life. Oh, wow. And would be still there today working on the Rio Olympics and had some uh, 
family adaptations to uh, Brazil. So we moved back with my family and uh, continued to work in water um, all over the world in consulting, mostly utilities. And then the opportunity opened up at Water for People, which is a nonprofit in uh, water and sanitation. And I'd known about Water for People my whole career because it was founded 25 years ago by uh, some employees of CH2M now, was formerly CH2M Hill with uh, Black and & Veatch and other engineering community along with the American Water Works Association. And I'd known people who'd worked there and been on the board and been my charity of choice forever and thought, oh my gosh, that would be my dream here in Denver. And I uh, applied for the job and I got it in July. Oh, terrific. Well, you know, I, I think the folks in Rio could really use you because I've, I've noticed a lot of articles <laughs> about the water quality issues that are going yes. on down there. <laughs> There's plenty so. to do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Water for People, you've kind of given this uh, brief background. It's a 25-year-old organization and was founded by a, a number of great companies and organizations. Can you tell us a little about what Water for People actually does? Water for People is a nonprofit dedicated to improving the lives of 4 million people currently. We work in nine countries, five in Latin America, three in Africa and India. And what we do is uh, bring water and sanitation to rural communities where they don't have any. So imagine you wake up today, you, you know where you get your water, which is probably a hike of a kilometer or two, or you send your kids with some jerry cans and and you bring your water because there's no uh, well or pumped or piped water system. And for your toilet, well, you probably don't even have one. Or if you do, it's a pit latrine. And that's kind of a part of a lot of what your life is about, worrying about where you're going to get your water or where you're going to go to the bathroom. Or if your kids are healthy or if you're healthy and you can go to work. And we're on a mission to bring water and sanitation to every family clinic and school in these rural communities where we work in. And it's all aligned to uh, sustainable development goals now, which are official. Uh, uh, sustainable development goal number six is about water and sanitation, bringing universal access through sustained service. Sure. I'd, I'd love to get into those sustainable development goals. But uh, b before we do, uh, how do you figure out what, you know, how do you identify where the projects need to, to occur? That's a great question. And it's... Uh, evolved a lot over the past 25 years. In the beginning when Water for People was founded, it was a lot of one-off projects, uh, go and bring a bunch of volunteers and dig a well and put in a bit of infrastructure and leave. And at one point in time, this is probably, I would say, uh, maybe 10 years ago or so, there were over 40 countries and a significantly lower revenue, and they were just kind of pet projects all over the world, but no programmatic approach. So what happened, it was ended up being a bit dilutive about the impact you can have because a lot of the projects or the infrastructure was put in the ground and then the community didn't know how to maintain it or operate it. Water for people left, and then the development fails. This is actually quite common, not just with our past, but in a lot of development today in the water sector, or we call it water sanitation hygiene, the wash sector is Putting things in the putting infrastructure in the ground is easy, but teaching the community who lives there how to operate and maintain it and develop the basic governance of developing their own water utility, for example. That's the, the people part, which is the hard part. Yeah, yeah. And so the uh, about two thousand between two thousand seven, two thousand ten and eleven, Waterford people had a major transformation. Said we're not gonna do one off projects anymore, we're gonna reduce our focus down to uh, it was ten countries at the time, today it's nine. 
and we're going to look at system-wide programmatic approaches. So developed uh, starting in 2013, the current strategy that we're delivering, which is 30 districts, and a district is uh, several communities combined, so you have a good number, several thousand people. And uh, in the nine countries, we reduced one. We didn't feel like we could have a sustainable impact and really focused on getting not only the water and sanitation built, but helping build the water committees and the, and the capability to maintain and operate, collect, to fi figure out what rates need to be set for water, how to collect the rates, how to do repairs, really a lot of uh, education on the utility side, and then also in the schools and in the communities on basic hygiene and sanitation. And uh, really transformational in the way we did, did our work to the way we're doing it now. And now we're trying to transform a lot of the sector to be focused on system-wide approaches, long-term looking at the uh, sustainable impact, of not just putting in the infrastructure, but having it last forever. So we call our model Everyone Forever, so that's every family clinic and school, forever. Hmm. Uh, so has the actual infrastructure changed, or is the, is the programmatic approach, did that change by, by trying to provide more education uh, so that, you know, as you indicated earlier, one of the big problems with a lot of these wash organizations has been that, you know, once once they leave, a pump breaks or something else breaks and, you know, no one knows how to fix it. And so all all's for naught, you know. So how did you bridge that that transition to, to actually make it sustainable? Well, one of the main changes we did is everywhere we work, we always have a an agreement with the community. In most cases, it's the municipality, and it's a signed agreement with the mayor or the municipal, whoever the municipal leader is. And the agreement is how we're going to work together, and they bring in co-financing. So Water for People brings financing, typically about 50% of the project or program, and then the local community also has to bring. So that's another part that's changed from the past. It's not just giveaway. It's they have to have a commitment financially. Mm -hmm. That's for the capital. So it's not – it's a – we, we call it a four-way partnership. So first is the community self-interest. Yes, we really won't see a different future for ourselves, one with water and sanitation that we don't have today. Then the government is the second part of the partnership. Government says, yeah, we really want to make this a priority for our municipality. So that's the will of the, of the, uh, the community and the government. And then uh, we bring in businesses and knowledge and social entrepreneurship through, our, through us to help envision a different future and help bring the partnership together to get there. So the co-financing is key, the belief in the partnership and the understanding of the commitment and a signed document is key. And that often doesn't happen, even some places in the world today, but that was a big change for us to have that partnership with the local municipality. Sure. And so the, I think that's fantastic that you're getting buy-in from the locals in terms of, of how, how that consensus building uh, is done on the local level. Are you involved in that, or is it is it up to the local community to uh, and those leaders to actually organize and and get figured out, you know, how they're going to pay for this and get community buy-in? I mean, do, do you guys help with that at all? Help figure out what what it costs and how to get community buy-in. Exactly. Oh, we definitely help with that. So in in our case, for example, community would approach us like, "Hey, we see what you're doing. Often it's in the next community over, or." the next state over and we say we really want it, this for our community and the community leader would come to us and we we say okay well these are the 
kind of the ingredients you have to have, not only the will, the desire, but you have to have bring, be able to find financing. And these are the kind of people you have to have on a water committee. You have to have someone who has the respect of community, someone who's able to lead. And it's really a behavior change in explaining um, a bit of fiscal literacy. Of what, yeah, water might be free in the, in the creek, but there's a cost of putting all the infrastructure into getting it to your house. And it's not just a one-time connection cost, which they also pay, but there's an ongoing cost of the of the chlorine and the fixing the valves and the pumps that fail and et cetera. And having that whole education process is really hard and actually sometimes really um, volatile. Like it was just in Honduras and Nicaragua last week and people get in fights over this. Like, I don't want to pay. And why should I pay? I, you know, I put in the, uh, I put in my work on the construction. I don't need to pay ever again. Well, no, it's, that's everyone needs to pay, uh, you know, to keep it going forever. And having that, and then a lot of discussions now as we're kind of moving into some of the systems working and collecting the rates. And what happens when, you know, someone has uses way more water than they should because they've cows or coffee or some other thing. Well, what's the, what's the fine or what, when do we cut their water off? And, and cutting water off is once they never had it, when they got it, and then cutting it off, that's a big deal. Oh, yeah, I bet. So yeah. a lot of the discussions that was part of listening last week was, well, how do we set the additional rate for when they use too much, and how do we cut them off, and how do we pay? What's the payment to reconnect, and how do we um, deal with the community hierarchy to say no? In this case, we're all equal, and we all have to pay. When a lot of these are more uh, history of the communities, is some people there's a hierarchy in everywhere. And look, trying to get over some of those things and really change behaviors in the way the community works in these. In, in this case, when it comes to waters. Yeah. Can be really hard. Yeah. And, it, it, you know, you, you were talking about educating the the consumers. And, and frankly, there's a lot of that that needs to go on here in the U.S. Because, you know, you, you mentioned your utility background. And, and we were kind of talking a little uh, beforehand about our experiences in the utility sector. And, you know, if you raise rates in the United States, people just, they just don't get it sometimes. And you go to those yeah. hearings and people just kind of say, you know, there's no way I should have to pay this much for water. Um what do you find are some of the more compelling arguments that that people that are looking to get these systems, you know, what what matters to them in terms of getting a system in in their community? Well, every community is different what their drivers are. I mean, oftentimes it's their livelihood versus their health, right? So it's washing their coffee or having giving water to their cows, which is a lot of water. Mm, yeah. And many Communities we have chosen to work in the rural areas, the hardest reach the heart, go to the hardest to reach. And so, explaining well, if we're going to develop a water system, let's take all that into account. Let's figure out. So then we, of course, map the water sources. Here, here are the sources available. Here's the amount of water available, and here's that means that you you can only use this much. Or yes, there's enough for you, but not your coffee or your cows. And and going through those discussions is pretty difficult. And then we do what we call at what cost, which is from the utility world, just life cycle costing. So we map out all the infrastructure. And again, some of these areas, especially in Latin America, the rural areas, their last connections are pretty far out there. Africa, it's higher density in India as well. But in Latin America, there's some really rural communities. So you figure out the capital cost and then you do a life cycle costing model and say, well, to get the system in place, you know, to reach everybody, this is what it costs for capital. I mean, this is. The O and M. Oh, that's that's a lot of money. Yeah. So going through that, just education on 
um, what it costs and then what it will cost if you really want to do you know, have all uh, for your your pigs and your cows that's we need more water so we got to pull in some more another uh, spring and another line from that other mountain or wherever it is and going through all just the planning of the water systems and the flows needed for their communities and generally agricultural communities pretty interesting and educational yeah i bet um what about water quality? I know just from from reading um, uh, Charles Fishman's The Big Thirst, I know that there was one chapter where they talked about, you know, a, a wash organization that had gone in, put in, you know, wells, but the, the water was tainted with arsenic. And mm-hmm. so are there are there those kinds of water quality issues where you're developing projects? Definitely. Arsenic is a big one in groundwater. Um, and Interesting, the word uh, I learned in Spanish last week. I've spoken Spanish for a long time, but there's like a difference between agua potable and agua intubada. Like water, there's just water in a pipe, but there's drinking water in a pipe. Yeah. So typically, you could, the first step is to get the water into the pipe and get it to the homes. But oftentimes, it's not good water. So then comes a whole other level of water quality. You either have in-home treatment, or you boil it, or you have it. Uh, or what we like to do is really have a little treatment at the source so you don't have to worry about your, just like we do here, you don't ever think about it. But that requires us to understand the water quality at the source, which in our cases is generally, uh, if it's surface water, it doesn't have arsenic, groundwater will have arsenic, but surface water will have coliform or some kind of bacteria that we need to treat. So chlorine tablets are the simplest way. But getting access to chlorine tablets is one challenge and getting it out to the communities, having them be able to buy them source them and then be able to pay for them and afford them and then actually getting it in and so it's not just put in but it has the residual chlorine at each tap in each home that's a challenge but that's one one we're taking on right now first was getting the water making sure we could get the water to people and now it's water quality and also it's water uh, it's climate change and integrated water resources management because we what we're seeing in in uh, almost everywhere we're working is water is the source of volume is going down, right? So we got to go into conservation up in the in the watersheds and start. Um, we're now looking at our all our programs to to water resource management. Do we need to start looking at tree planting and, and partnering with other NGOs like the Nature Conservancy and others that are really looking at, at at conservation? Because otherwise, we don't have everyone forever. We have everyone, but not forever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's right now. We're really looking at water quality, water resources management. And working that into our into our approach. Oh, that, that's very interesting. I especially find that your your thoughts on partnering with other NGOs uh, that's something I wouldn't have really thought about. But I, I guess you know you're doing a great job, kind of looking out for the future and seeing where you need to to direct water for people to to maintain the sustainability. Um, earlier we mentioned the sustainable development goals. Could you tell us kind of what those are? Sure. Well, we're focused on sustainable development goal number six, okay. which is water and sanitation. And I uh, don't know exactly the words, but it's more or less ensuring sustainable water and sanitation for everyone okay. by 2030 in the whole world. So what that really means is we have still 2.4 billion people that don't have adequate sanitation in the world today. That's about a third of the planet. It's a lot of people. Yeah. So that's people who either don't have approved improved latrines or they have none and they're just open defecation or on the water side um, 1.8 billion that don't have safe water so that number goes down depending whose source you look at but the source we use is 
from University of North Carolina. It's about safe water. It was just what we talked about. Yeah. They might get water to their house, but it might not be safe. So we're all about safe access. So $1.8 billion for water, $2.4 billion for sanitation. Those are huge numbers still. 193 countries have signed the Sustainable Development Goals. Um, so that's 193 countries generally that need to get with the program to get make this a national priority. Now, for our nine countries, we have four that uh, we're really focused on not only doing our district-level work, but working at national level to help the national government put in a framework to, to reach and achieve sustainable development goal number six. So for us, that's Rwanda, Uganda, and uh, Honduras and Bolivia. And um, that's enough to take us for our next five-year strategy. <laughs> so a lot of the, the goals are set by the, na by the president saying we, we, they're all over, but generally between eight, uh, 2018, 2020, 2025, they want to have universal access in their countries. And that really was already what we were doing anyway, but gives us more uh, force and more uh, formality, and it makes it a bit, we can accelerate getting to 2030. And so coming back to cooperating and partnering with other NGOs, I think what I've been learning uh, in the nonprofit world compared to my for-profit experiences, a lot of nonprofits don't partner. I mean, there's not really a driving reason to, or they don't merge because there's no Profit, there's no synergies, there's no all those things we talk about in the mergers and acquisitions and for profit. But we are interested in partnering with other nonprofits because we feel compelled to accelerate the work, the um, rhythm of the work we're doing. So if we're going to get water and sanitation to 4 million people by 2018, which is our current strategy, we want to go up. Uh, we're just finishing strategy for up to the next five years, so to 2022. We want to get uh, 40 million or plus. So we're saying we want to increase our impact by 10 times. It doesn't mean we're going to go set up operations in a bunch of communities to do 10 times as much work that we're doing today at the local level, but it does mean we are going to work with other NGOs and work at the national level to help set up national frameworks to affect large countrywide programs to help get to SDG 6 by 2030. Yeah. So that's a big change for us. Sure, and, and big change. And also, it sounds to me like you need a lot of money to make all this happen uh so how, how what is the funding model for water for people how do you get your money so we get our money mostly through private donors uh we are fortunate we have a large donor base and many in uh, not so it's private versus like a bilateral funding or a government funded so we have we like to fund our strategy rather than having our strategy be directed at what our funders give us money for and we've been fortunate to do that so far so today we're about a 20 million dollar organization We've been growing about 10 to 15% each year. We will continue to. We don't have aspirations to be a huge nonprofit. We do have aspirations to be much more impactful through partnerships. And so we will, uh, over the next five years, our strategy is, is focused on four uh, pillars. One is to increase uh, leadership in the sector, which is partnering with others, working at the national level, increasing our impact more through an advisory versus a direct implementer role. And second is to... Um, really accelerate sanitation. We got the water thing down, got a nail, but sanitation is a lot more complicated and a lot harder. Fortunately, something I love, being a wastewater engineer, <laughs> and you know, we're talking about latrine, pit latrines and latrines and latrine emptying services versus wastewater, which is, yeah. it's complicated, but it's a real way a lot of the world lives. Then our third uh, pillar is continuing to deliver our, our nine countries, 30 districts, four million people, don't lose sight of our main focus, which is getting the work done. And then our last is scale. And scaling for us, again, is working with other nonprofits 
adding districts and maybe entering a few new countries uh, over the next five years. Sure. And so that's how you get funded. What about how, how does the work get done? Are they, is it through volunteer labor? Are there employees that are doing this? Who, how does the project actually come to fruition? Today we are uh, mostly, uh, well, actually all our work in countries done by country nationals. Okay. Historically, we had a lot of volunteers. And again, people like me from the water, wastewater sector worked for the consulting firms. Did a, they would do surveys or monitoring and evaluation or help scope new programs. Now that we're in program implementation, we really believe that the best way to be most sustainable is to have people who live there be doing the work and learning the knowledge. And that's totally, I believe in that. I've been to now four of our, our nine countries. I'll finish all nine by February. It's absolutely critical that local people have the knowledge and understanding of the systems to be able to run them forever. So what we uh, are now do is each country has kind of the same elements. There's a country director, the leadership role. Then there's the uh, engineers and really the infrastructure program project managers. There's the social leaders that help with the education of water and sanitation hygiene, also with the behavior change and helping develop the at-what-cost models and the training operation and maintenance of the water committees and um, why, why rates, what rates, and how to start saving for uh, capital repairs later. And um, then there's the marketing communications, and the those are kind of the main. And, um, oh, and then monitoring evaluation is a huge one. We do a lot of continuous monitoring and data collection, and uh, we're really known. It's one of our, our great things about Water for People, really known for that, to be very transparent, try things, be honest when things don't work, and continuously shift in our, our monitoring evaluation program using uh, uh, an open source technology called Flow, which is by a company called ECFO. We helped develop it. Um, and continuing to improve that is another part, big part of what we do in-country. So uh, volunteers we still have. They're mostly pretty technical. Uh, like an example would be helping us develop this integrated water resources program or helping uh, do an arsenic removal plant or something. A lot of desktop studies or very... Uh, a handful of people do go into countries and help us, but it's a pretty specialized technical level now. I mean, I, I think that is a, a really smart thing you're doing is getting the locals to know exactly, you know, what's going on in the system that, because I think it just enhances the, the education. So I think that's a really smart thing that you're doing. Um, but I, that also begs the question, you know, for someone who is really interested in the mission of Water for People and may not be able to just you know, pull out their checkbook and write a, write a check. How, how can they help Water for People? Well, there are different ways to help. One, of course, the checkbook is great. <laughs> we do have large fundraising goals. And um, the second is we have many committees through the Water American Water Works Association throughout the country, so dozens of them. So these are uh, American Water Works in each section has committees for different things, for treatment, for government affairs, and one's Water for People. The committees are people who are interested in international development work. So generally, the committees are those who know what we're doing, help spread the word. It's usually a fundraising activities they do locally, and they help us um, communicate with others about our, our accomplishments and what our plans are for moving forward. So if someone in any of the places around the U.S. is really interested in learning about Water for People, committee is a great place to start. Uh, more technical is, again, looking working with our... Um, and this is all on our website about our, we call it the World Water Corps, which is our volunteer group. Again, like I said, now it's 
much more um, pretty technical focused and uh, pretty different assignments than before, which were more just field work, but now they're technical engineering type assignments. Um, for those who really want to go visit one of our countries, we have an impact tour every year. This one is coming in March. These are generally donors who want to know where their money's going and really want to experience what, what our programs are. We have one in March going to Bolivia. Those are things I can think of. <laughs> sure. And, uh, you know, you, you mentioned the AWWA tie, and I've seen a lot of, you know, various sections of the AWWA around the U.S. where there are numerous uh, fundraisers, and we're not talking big dollar. Obviously, big dollars help, can have a, a lot of impact, but those small donations through those uh, various fundraisers add up and, and can really uh, have an impact. Um, so I, I just encourage those folks who uh, are involved uh, with AWWA, AWWA sections to uh, support those types of programs for Water for People. Well, yeah, just another comment on that. It's not AWWA is where we started, but we have large involvement from the Water Environment Federation, which is the uh, Wastewater Professional Association, then um, AMWA and NACWA, which are also associated. AMWA's with water and NACWA's with wastewater. And then the, um, the, the private uh, water wastewater utilities through the NA, NAWC, National Association of Water Companies. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, all those are fantastic organizations. Yeah. Um, and so, Eleanor, you've been absolutely fantastic. Uh, I've learned a lot about Water for People and its history here. And uh, really appreciate you taking some time uh, to talk with us today about Water for People and what its mission is and what its work is. Uh, for those who want to find out a little more about Water for People, can you tell us where people can go to get that information? Sure. Our, web, our website is actually really great, waterforpeople.org. And you can you go on there, and there's a part that calls our impact, uh, impact tracker, I think it's called. But you can go into each country and see where we are on all our metrics that we have in our districts. And it's, it's graphics and visual, and you can see where, how we're doing in our where we work and you can also of course read all about us and our mission and our vision and what motivates us and who we are and um and i also want to mention april 7th denver 25th anniversary party so those who are denver locals it will be a great party and i can't remember where it is but i'm sure there'll be plenty of announcements coming up in april but it'll be it's a big celebration for us and we'll be doing it yeah. here, here locally terrific um and can you mentioned you're a nonprofit, so any donations are tax deductible yes um you know, can you donate straight from the website? Or? Yeah, yeah. There's plenty of places you go right there. It'll say donate. <laughs> you can't miss it. Yeah. yeah. So it's easy. It's, it's easy. easy to donate. Yes, uh, it's easy. And it's the perfect time of year to do so. It's a great organization. It's a great cause. Uh, so. And we're running our winter campaign now. It's a fundraising campaign through. Uh, I can't remember where it is, but and there's another thing going on right now that's really cool. World Toilet Day was November 19th last week. Yep. We have a partnership with Cottonelle. Go Commando for a Cause. Every time you tweet with a hashtag, Go Commando for a Cause, Cottonell gives us a dollar. So that's part of our winter campaign as well. Oh, ter terrific. So, yeah, get on Twitter and uh, use the hashtag. Uh, what was the hashtag again? Um, go Commando for. Numeral four. four numeral four a cause. Go Commando for numeral four a, a cause. cause. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Eleanor, again, thanks so much for coming in. Really appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks, thanks David. Bye-bye.
I hope you enjoyed that interview with Eleanor Allen. She was tremendous. And we had a terrific conversation before the inter- interview where we shared some war stories of working in the utility sector. Uh, it was really just a fantastic uh, experience speaking with her. Uh, and Water for People is very lucky to have her guiding the organization. Well, a few quick takeaways. The first is the focus with which Water for People is accomplishing its mission. You know, it's in nine countries now, so it's very targeted in accomplishing its projects. It's not spreading itself too thin. And with that added focus, uh, which, you know, they've made a priority in the last few years, that allows them to make the best use of their resources and maximize the good they're doing. Uh, My second takeaway uh, concerns the model that they use to achieve their goal and that involves the local community. You know, as Eleanor said, they're not just providing handouts. They require investment from the local community on several levels. Financial, technical, managerial abilities all play into the uh, to getting a Water for People project done. You know, financially, the, the aided community needs to come up with a portion of the initial capital cost. They need to understand rate structures. Uh, they need to be able to financially plan for capital additions and a whole slew of other aspects uh, of you know, from a financial perspective for running a utility. From the technical side, uh, the aided community needs, how, needs to learn how the, the system technically works, and they need to get educated about the technical aspects of that water system. And then from a managerial perspective, Eleanor described how the community needs to be able to run the system. You know, they need to figure out, uh, you know, one poignant example she gave out was, was figuring out when to shut customers off who use too much water. And they need to learn how to make other just kind of utility management decisions. So, you know, it, that, that model that Water for People has adopted for project delivery, I think, is a very good one because it really requires buy-in. And, and they are going to be, you know, with all the effort that they're putting into in getting up to speed on how these systems work, uh, the, the aided community is going to be much in a much better position and will appreciate it uh, more because, you know, they've, they've made an investment in that system. So with the end of the calendar year 2015 coming up, now would be the perfect time to help out Water for People and make a donation. As Eleanor indicated, it can be done right on their website, and that's waterforpeople.org, and I'll link that website in the show notes. Now, just in case you were wondering, I do not get a cut from any donation you might make, and that's been true of the Water Values podcast to date. I've always done this for free so far. Um, so, you know, Eleanor wanted me to make sure that you could get her Twitter handle and learn about some of the other uh, partnerships that Water for People's entered into, one of which is Elix Premium Vodka. And I'll have all those, all that information on the show notes as well. So please, you check those show notes out and you can check them out at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 74. You can leave a comment on the show notes or you can email me at david at thewatervalues.com. Uh, you can also tweet at me at dtm1993. And you can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water values. And please do me a favor. Please rate and review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and other podcast directories. That's a great way for people to find out about the podcast. Also, please sign up for the Water Values newsletter. And please take the listener survey, which is on the homepage of thewatervalues.com. That really helps me uh, get topics that you want to hear about, and it gives me ideas uh, for for ways I can take this podcast and, and bring you what you want to hear. In closing, 
Please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. Listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning into the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and this podcast does not establish an attorney client relationship with you or anyone else. And information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.